0: From Luke 1:39 through 55. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my God, in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name, for his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever.
1: The signs of Christmas are all around us. We certainly know that Christmas is approaching by the twinkle lights and blow up things that go up in people's yards uh, as Christmas trees go up, decorations, and it's not just in homes, is it? You go to the public town centers and you see things on light poles and trees in the middle and the center of the park, and it's very clear that Christmas is approaching. And yet that wasn't the case in the first Christmas. That year that Jesus was born, as Luke chapter one explains, the surroundings and the the events around Christ's birth were very humble. There weren't bright lights initially. There weren't decorations and and big announcements. Yes, we're getting to them. But so far, it's just been an announcement to a teenage virgin and to a priest, Zechariah, who was nothing special, just one of many priests. And so you have to ask the question as we begin to celebrate Advent, why so much humility around this event that arguably is the greatest event the world's ever seen, to change the world, to save the world? Why so much humility? And then on top of that, what kind of perspective should that produce in you and me? And so we're going to look this morning at at three perspectives. And we're going to look at them through three characters in this story. John the Baptist, Elizabeth, and Mary. So we start with the first perspective that... This humility surrounding the birth of Jesus should produce. First, it should produce a humble view of self. Mary has just found out from the angel Gabriel that she's gonna have a child in her womb. And she hears that her relative Elizabeth is about to have a child in Elizabeth's well beyond childbearing years. And so Mary picks up and hurries off to Elizabeth's house to find out what's going on. And this is this true? So we pick up in verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, verse 44, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. This is a foreshadowing of what we'll see happen in about 30 years when John the Baptist and Jesus are adults. And Jesus is entering into his public ministry. In fact, we see something very similar happen 30 years later. John chapter 1, it says that Jesus is walking along and he's approaching John. And John exclaims, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, I don't know if John jumped, but it's very much the parallel of what we saw happen 30 years earlier when he jumped in the womb at the presence of Jesus. And then when you move on to John chapter 3, we find out that John the Baptist's disciples are growing concerned. Because there's people that are leaving John John the Baptist and going to Jesus. And they're concerned about this. They're losing their ministry. Listen to how John the Baptist, right? So from when he left in the womb, in Elizabeth's womb, to what he proclaims in John chapter 3, starting in verse 28, as he responds to his disciples who are grieved by what they're seeing, people moving away from him. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, speaking of Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. So you see, John the Baptist, from the very beginning, he knew what his role was. And that was to be the one to introduce people to Jesus, that the bride, lost and broken people, would meet the bridegroom, Jesus. And when John the Baptist saw that happening, he rejoiced, even though his disciples were grieving. They didn't quite get it yet. But I want you to think about that imagery that John introduces for us, that wedding imagery. You've all been to weddings, and imagine a moment when the bride is walking down the aisle, and the bridegroom is waiting at the front. What are the attendants doing? Well, typically the bridesmaids are you know, fighting back tears of joy, and the groomsmen are, are beaming from ear to ear. Why? because the bride and the bridegroom are about to unite, and their joy is wrapped up in that. Now, I want you to imagine if one of the bridesmaids, let's say it's the sister of the bride, who set this couple up a year and a half earlier. As the bride's walking down the aisle and all eyes are on the bride and the bridegroom, if this sister says, hey, hey, I I set them up a year and a half ago, if it weren't for me, they wouldn't be coming together. Can I get a little bit of the spotlight? It's ridiculous. Of course that wouldn't happen. I hope it hasn't. Maybe it hasn't a wedding. No, that, that, that sister served her role. She helped introduce them, sure. But now it's, it's the joy of watching this bride and bridegroom unite. That the joy is wrapped up in that union, what if you viewed your life this way? What if you viewed your life, your role on this earth, to introduce people to Jesus, to move people towards Jesus, to disciple them towards Jesus, to shepherd them towards Jesus, that the bridegroom, Jesus, and the bride, lost and broken people, of whom you were at one point, United. To have the view that I don't need the spotlight. I don't want the spotlight. I can rejoice when someone leaves my community group and goes to somebody else's community group because for whatever reason, that will help them unite to Jesus. Or I can rejoice when someone leaves my influence as a discipler and starts to move towards someone else to receive instruction and shepherding from that person, I can rejoice because for whatever reason that helps them unite to Jesus. That I can have the attitude in in my conversations with people that I want people to be moved towards Jesus and so I don't personalize everything that everyone says to me. Because my filter is not how can this person stroke my ego, but how can I move this person towards Jesus? It's not about me. The spotlight's not on me. I want to see this person unite to Jesus. You know, we're talking about a humble view of self. I decrease, Jesus increases. The question is, what does a a prideful view of self look like? And I want to speak just quickly to two, I'll call them dysfunctions, that are really all about self increasing and Jesus decreasing. But I'm going to speak to them because they, they tend to fly under the radar. Okay? And one is what I'll call codependency. It's a, a dysfunction called codependency. It looks like this uh, someone moves into somebody else's life to help that person. And as they start helping that person, they begin to actually get their self-worth out of helping that person and begin to become controlling and manipulative in the relationship. And the person being helped, right, starts to attach to that person. And that's what counselors and others would call a a codependent relationship. And what happens in that relationship is that Jesus decreases and self-increases. I'll give you another example. It's a close cousin to it, but the the Messiah complex or the Savior mentality, which which says this, that person can't change apart from me. If I'm not in their life, if I'm not helping them, if I'm not pouring myself out to them, they cannot change. And so what happens is it looks like an extreme, amazing picture of self-sacrifice, but behind the scenes, it's really just a a dysfunctional, highly dysfunctional self must increase, Jesus must decrease. See the the humble view of self where we all can agree to be attenders and and attendants at the wedding. Watching the bride and the bridegroom unite, watching lost and broken people unite to Jesus and celebrating however it happens, through whoever it happens that we're all watching that. Let me speak to one other prideful view of self. There are some of you in this room this morning whom Jesus is pursuing. He has been pursuing you through people, through situations that you haven't even tried to find yourself in. He's pursuing you and it's clear. And maybe you're not responding And maybe one of the reasons is you realize for me to respond to Jesus, I have to admit weakness. I have to admit that I don't have it all together. I have to admit that I'm not strong. And so that's kept you from responding. And and you need to hear this morning that you cannot come to know Jesus unless you first admit your weakness, your sinfulness, your need for a Savior. That's why Jesus came. That's why he came to this earth. Let's move on to the second perspective. What perspective should the humility surrounding Jesus' birth produce? First, a humble view of self. Second, a humble view of God's work in your life. And to look at this, we're gonna move to Elizabeth's response to Mary. When she shows up at her house, we look at verse 42. Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then verse 45 And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord interesting. This is the first beatitude that we see in the Gospels. Blessed is. And what we see here, basically what Elizabeth is saying is, blessed is Mary for believing what God said he would do, even when it seemed impossible. You look at the circumstances surrounding this. Mary was a teenage virgin. How in the world was she going to have a child? You look at Elizabeth, who was well beyond childbearing years. How was she going to have a child? And then on top of that, you look at the public shame that Mary potentially was going to experience because she got pregnant out of wedlock. That's why we read in Matthew's gospel that Joseph secretly was, was going to separate from her because of this potential shame. So you put it all together, the impossibility of a teenage virgin having a child, the, the older woman who's beyond childbearing years, the shame, Mary's reputation at stake. And now you see why Elizabeth says, "Blessed is Mary, because she believed what. God said he would do, even when it didn't make sense. You look at her confession. Uh, It's in verse 38. We looked at it. Tommy looked at it last week. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, when Mary made that confession, let it be to me according to your word, what she was not saying is, Lord, this makes complete sense. I get it. I completely understand how you are going to make a child in my womb when I've had no union with a man. I get it. I completely understand why you would ask a teenage virgin to carry the savior of the world. I completely understand why I would face public shame for this potentially and my reputation is at stake. Lord, I get it all. Let it be in me according to your word. No. There was much confusion in Mary. She wondered what was happening. And this is what makes her confession all the more amazing. When she couldn't make sense of what was happening, what she could see with her physical eyes, she believed the Lord's word. She believed his promise that he would do what he said he was going to do, even though she couldn't quite make the circumstances fit and work out. We're talking about the humble view of God's work in your life. So what, what's the prideful view of God's work in your life? It's the, it's the I know best view. It's, it's the God loves me and I have a wonderful plan for my life. And what happens is that prideful view of I know what's best I know how things should happen, the timing of when things should happen. It's when that I know best starts to really dig in, it turns into expectations. And then expectations are placed on God and then expectations turn into, God owes me something, entitlement. So you go from, I, I got a plan and I know what's best, turns into expectations, turns into entitlement with God, and when we get down that progression, we respond not like Mary and Elizabeth did, but how Zachariah did at the beginning of Luke 1, which is unbelief. Zachariah didn't believe. God's word spoken to him through the angel, probably for the same reasons. My wife's gonna have a child, do you understand God? She's beyond childbearing years, right? You know, Mary's confession really rings of what we read in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 11. Listen to this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That God's word is powerful and it will accomplish God's salvation and his purposes, even when it doesn't seem like it. That God will accomplish what he's going to accomplish. You know, there's tremendous blessing and peace when you believe that God does what he says he does, even when you can't see it. On the contrary, there is tremendous anxiety and unrest in your heart. When you believe God is going to do something or you put an expectation on God that he never promised. Let me explain this, let me use two examples. Number one, God has never promised you a pain-free, comfortable life. He never has promised that. Now, what he has promised in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your discomfort, your trial, your suffering, whatever it may be, he has promised his presence. And he has promised that he is working all things together for good even when you can't see it in other words god never wastes pain there's tremendous blessing and peace when you believe what god has promised his presence and then he works things together for good I'll give you a second example uh, it's it's tied together but god has never promised you health He's never promised you health. He's also never promised you wealth or material blessing. He never has. What he has promised is that he'll never leave you or never forsake you. And he has promised that he'll provide exactly what you need. What tremendous blessing and peace When you believe that God never wastes pain, when you believe that God provides exactly what you need right now, tremendous blessing and peace that replaces the anxiety and the unrest, a humble view of God's work in your life, a humble view of God's work in your life we move on to the third perspective that the humility surrounding Jesus' birth should produce in you. And the third is a humble view of God's work in the world. We arrive at Mary's song. It's beautiful. And starting in verse 46, when you read her song, it is over and over describing the humble ways in which God brings his salvation to this world. And let me just point it out for you. You can follow along. In verse 48, she says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Verses 51 and on, forever. This song, it's when you read it and all that's led up to it, what Mary has been told by the angel and what she's believed. And then she bursts out into this song, which is all what Advent is about. We don't necessarily burst out in song these days when we get excited about something, but that's what we see happening here and what we're actually going to be looking at in this series of Advent are these songs that they just burst out into. It's as if Mary has this aha moment when she bursts out into this song with all that has happened and led up to it. It's it's as if she finally, or it clicks, or in the moment she understands that God accomplishes his salvation through the humble and the weak, not through the prideful and powerful. That God's salvation comes through the weak and through the broken and through the humble. And she actually defines who the humble and the weak are in her song. It's it's verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel. When you look at all of the scriptures, when you look at the story of salvation and how it progresses through the scriptures, when it starts with God choosing Israel to be the vehicle of his salvation, Old Testament, to be the light to the world. When he chooses Israel, it's not because of the most powerful nation. In fact, quite the contrary. He says, you were small. You were relatively obscure. He says, I chose you not because you were worthy, but because I loved you. And then you look at Israel's history, right? They're constantly being invaded by the power players in the world. Powerful nations. They're being carried off into exile by Babylon. When the prophets and the Psalms speak of Israel, they oftentimes speak of Israel as the oppressed, as the weak. And so when Mary gets to her song here, she's going, ah, I get it. God, you have brought your salvation all along. And now continuing through what I'm experiencing, humility and weakness, starting with Israel and then moving into the person of Jesus, which we found out in Luke chapter 1 is all about humility and weakness. God speaks to Zechariah, a priest. He wasn't a special priest. He was one of the hundreds and hundreds of priests that served in rotation in the temple. And for some reason, God chose Zachariah. Normal, normal priest. And then God appears to Mary through the angel Gabriel in what town? Nazareth. We learn from John 1 that it was not a highly regarded town. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. You say, well, wouldn't the savior of the world, the mother-to-be of the savior of the world be from somewhere renowned like Rome or Jerusalem or some town of renown and fame? No, it's Nazareth. It's a podunk, one-stop light, no Walmart town. It is humble, weak, and then you move on. Wouldn't the mother-to-be of the Savior of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, wouldn't she be some sort of princess, some woman of great fame or renown? No. A normal teenage virgin in a podunk town called Nazareth. And Mary in this song gets it. God, you accomplish your salvation through the weak, and through the humble, and through the broken, that's the vehicle through which your salvation comes. Paul picks it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to what he says. For consider your your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Think about the disciples that Jesus chose. They were far from the power players of the world. Think about the early church. It was birthed into a culture and a government that was absolutely opposed to Christianity. All along from Israel to Jesus, to the disciples, to the early church, we see that God works out his salvation through the humble and the weak. Let me pick up some other aspects of Paul's life. You know, there's, there's two important implications that we get out of this. Okay? And the first is that your brokenness and your weakness qualifies you to be used by God. Apostle Paul, in the midst of his profound weakness, it's called a a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what happened to Paul, what the physical ailment was. But listen to what Paul says in the midst of that in 2 Corinthians 12, nine, he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then 2 Corinthians four, seven, but we have this treasure, this pearl, this treasure, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see, God chooses weak and broken vessels to bring his gospel to the world, so that the world sees Jesus. You know, it's a, it's a pearl in a paper bag. It's a gem in a paper bag, right? The beauty, the treasure is, is, is Jesus, and so he uses broken vessels Jars of clay, cracked, broken, weak to accomplish his salvation. That's how he's worked throughout history. It's how he continues to work. And what that means is that your brokenness and your weakness is what qualifies you first and foremost for entrance into the kingdom, to admit your brokenness and your, your weakness. But it's what qualifies you to be used for, by God. So don't hide your brokenness don't hide your weakness. It's the very thing that God uses to say to this world, there's a Savior and his name's Jesus. And oh, by the way, he came in weakness and humility. So don't hide your weakness. The second implication, and I started to mention it, and that is that Jesus was birthed into a world and culture that was dominated by a pagan and evil empire called the Roman Empire that did not support Christianity at all. Persecuted Christians were hostile to followers of Christ. The early church was birthed in Acts into the same evil and pagan empire called the Roman Empire. And yet what we see is what did the early church do in that kind of environment? It flourished, it multiplied, it couldn't be stopped. And so I share that in the context of the humble way in which God works in his world so that you don't fret with where things are at in America now. Yes, this culture is growing more and more hostile to Jesus, to followers of Christ, to Christianity, to the church. All of that is true. Guess what? The church is going to thrive in the midst of that. The gospel is going to flourish. Notice what Jesus said. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say, I will build Rome, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nor does He say today, I will build America, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No, He said, I will build my church. My church I will build, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The power of the church doesn't rest in a government, a set of civil laws. It doesn't rest in a culture that is supportive of Christianity. It doesn't rest in an organization uh, that's against Christianity. The power of the church rests in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is going to build his church and nothing is gonna thwart that. And we as a church need to believe that, to be ones that are not full of fear to be ones that say, Jesus is gonna build his church. Oh yes, tribulation's coming. We see where things are heading in our land, but Jesus is building his church, so let's get after it. That's what he calls us to. And we say, this is nothing different than how the church has grown throughout the centuries in in the face of opposition as a minority movement in a dominant culture. That was the Roman Empire. The church exploded in Asia. When the church was exploding in Asia, right? The government was trying to stop it and it exploded. Africa, same thing. Why? Because that's how God works. That's how He works. He brings salvation through humble, weak, broken vessels. And the church is built. God works in humble ways in this world. We've looked at three characters in this passage. We've looked at John the Baptist, Elizabeth, and Mary. There's a fourth character, right? It's in Mary's womb. It's the savior of the world. It's the center of everything in this story. You know, we talk about humility, and and clearly in this passage, It's all about humility, humble view of self, humble view of God's work in the world in Elizabeth, Mary, humble view of his work in the world as Mary gets it and sees what's happened through the centuries, right? But all of this is centered on the fourth character in this story, in the womb of Mary, Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 is probably one of the stronger passages in the Bible that talks about humility. And listen to what it says about Jesus in verses 6 to 8. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The verses that precede that describing Jesus, call us to humility, to consider others better than yourselves. But then the verse preceding that, verse five, listen to what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, this mind, the humble mind, the humble view of self, the humble view of how God works in your life, the humble view of how God works through this world. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours because you try to get there. No, which is yours in Christ Jesus? You see, humility and all that we've talked about that surrounds humility, all of it, that perspective is impossible apart from being in Christ, which means apart from knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so the question I want you to ponder, it's a super simple question, as we are in Advent season, is do you know Him? Do you know Jesus? He came to rescue you. He came so that you could know Him. Let's pray. Father, Would you forgive us this morning for our pride? Would you forgive us for our prideful view of self? Maybe for some here this morning that say, I can't admit weakness. I can't admit that I'm not strong. Would you by your spirit bring them to a place of humility that they could receive the blessing and the peace of knowing you, Jesus? And Father, there are those here this morning that are struggling mightily with the hand that they've been dealt in life right now. There is great pain, there's great confusion over how things are unfolding in their life and how it has maybe unfolded for a couple years. Father, would you by your spirit ring true in their heart and mind your promise that you're always with them and that you work everything together for good even though they can't see it, and even though it looks confusing, that they would believe your word like Mary when she couldn't understand what was happening. That they would believe you and find tremendous peace and blessing in simply believing that you will do what you've promised. And Father, as we reflect on the world, there is terror everywhere. And there is great reason to have fear. And yet you promise that you'll never leave us, never forsake us. And you promise to build your church even in the midst of terror and fear. And Father, would you replace our fear with a radical trust that as we interact with the world around us, that we may say we struggle with fear, but that there is is hope and love and peace in the midst of it that even that would be an inroads to the gospel with the world around us. That we trust a God who's in complete control and nothing happens apart from his hand. Would you comfort us in that? Father, as we close now in worship, we want to adore your son, Jesus, who comes this Advent to remind us of the hope and the blessing that we have in him.
0: We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.